This is A Sound Purchase, a podcast that does a deep dive to explore iconic recordings. Episode 6, Blake Mills' 2014 release, Hi-Ho. I got a lot of time for the guy as a musician, as an artist, but yeah... He he he's making it really hard to like him, <laughs> yeah. you know. But so you mean making making it hard? I thought it was always hard to like him. Oh yeah, I suppose. I mean, I I guess I just buried my head in the sand initially. Kind of went, oh come on, it's the Eagles, they're legends, and you know they they've got good solo careers and so on. But yeah, yeah, it is it is getting really hard to stick by them. Yeah. Uh when when they're doing things like taking government bailout money. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's difficult. Uh, what was the other one, other thing I watched recently? The making of the Black Album. There's two parts to it. So there's the actual recording and then there's the touring side of it. Yeah, and and they're another band that they make it really hard to like them. Yeah. Uh, what what made me laugh was uh, was a clip of Bob Rock just yeah. basically laying into Kirk Hammett going, "Why are you here? Why are you in this band? Oh. Write a proper guitar solo." <laughs> wow, I, yeah, I've got a lot of time funny. for Bob Rock. I tell you that, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, but he gave us the St. Anger snare, so yeah. But did he? Yeah, he produced that album. I got a feeling that Lars had a lot more to do with that. Yeah. It's like when you watch some kind of monster; they're doing this jam session. And I've been in that position. Lars is just being difficult for the sake of being difficult, trying to be creative. He's basically trying to do like a King Crimson sort of thing. So he's just not playing the 2-4 backbeat. Mm. I'm surprised Hetfield would let him get away with it because he's apparently quite precious about what he writes. Yeah. Rewatching Some Kind of Monster after 15-odd years, you get a new appreciation for it because it's obviously not just the band bickering, but you look at it, how their dynamics work and Kirk Hammett just literally sits there mm. of course the best part of some kind of monster is in the mm. bonus features where it's kirk hammett's 40th birthday <laughs> and lars throws him a birthday party oh i remember you telling me a about this yeah. from inside the party where everybody's having a good time hugging it out <laughs> to bob rock and lars ulrich outside having a nice and simple conversation this thing you did for kirk is amazing all this stuff and nobody ever does anything for me. <laughs> My understanding is basically James Hetfield and Lars Ulrich do all the musical side of stuff, apart from whatever they've got yeah. doing bass for them at the time. And then Kirk Hamlet rocks up to the studio, does his bit, and then goes again. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah, just goes surfing. But apparently he just wastes a load of time because he's not prepared at all. Oh, I don't know. And because, you know, because he's not very good. Oh. He's not very good. <laughs> leave him alone. He is great. He gets there. Yeah. He gets there. Well, welcome to Sound Purchase Episode 6. Today we are going to be looking at the 2014 release, Hi-Ho by Blake Mills. I always thought it was Hey-Ho, but everything I've heard is, is telling me it's Hi-Ho. Yeah, that's, that's how you spell Hi-Ho. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, it's off to work we go, Jake. Wondered how long. I wondered how long it would take you to get to that pun. Yeah, I know. What was that? That was uh, about 30 seconds. Yeah. I'm proud of you. Thank you. You're getting better. Thank you. It was released in 2014. It was released by the legendary jazz label Verve in conjunction with Record Collection. 
Mills was 28 at the time of its release, and he'd already garnered a bit of a reputation as a in-demand session player, having recorded mm. and toured with Doors, Band of Horses, Cass McCombs, Julian Casablancas from The Strokes, Kid Rock, although we should probably take that off his credits. I doubt he wants to be associated with that anymore. I'm about to say, nothing wrong with Kid Rock, but there's a lot wrong with Kid Rock. This is not a political <laughs> podcast. Uh, Weezer, Paolo Nutini, Nora Jones, Jessica Hoop, the Dixie Chicks, or now just simply the Chicks. Pink, Lana Del Rey, Wolfpack, and he's even played on Bob Dylan's new record. Oh, yeah. I didn't know about that one. Okay. So to tie Mills into our previous episode, Mills hosts a jam night at a surf shop in California and the night is called the mollusk sessions nice it's as if it was supposed to happen right is that why you picked this album it's not but I, it was a very happy coincidence right special guests usually include jackson brown billy gibbons from zz top ben montench of the heartbreakers tal wilkenfeld the australian bassist or prince jeff beck herbie hancock and mike einziger from incubus Quite a nice collection of people there. That's Yeah, that's, that's the big old list. Hi-Ho was recorded and produced by Mills himself, who has since gone on to produce Sound and Colour for Ella, Alabama Shakes. It's not Ella, Alabama Shakes, it's just Alabama Shakes. <laughs> Although, Ella, Alabama Shakes sounds pretty cool too. It's <laughs> like Danny Aka 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 Ackeroid. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And he earned... Best Producer Grammy nomination for that album. Still impressive. I've not been nominated for any Grammys. He's also produced Doors, John Legend, Jessica Hoop, Laura Marling, and hopefully me one day, because along with Rick Rubin, Mills may be my producer of choice for any, any work that I do. Oh, wow. The record was recorded at the fabled Oceanway Studios, which boasts an incredible history of recordings from Michael Jackson's Thriller and Bad, mm. Eminem's The Marshall Mathers LP, John Mayer's Heavier Things, Radiohead's Hail to the Thief, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Californication, Dr. Dre's 2001, Rolling Stones, Bridges to Babylon, Madonna's Ray of Light, Tune. Beck's Mutations, U2, Achung Baby, Talking Heads, Stop Making Sense, Buena Vista Social Club, Don Henley, Building of the Perfect Beast, <laughs> Green Day, American Idiot, Boom. and 21st Century Breakdown, uh, amongst a whole smattering of others. Don Henley's ruined it. He's ruined it. He's ruined the mojo of the room. That album is fantastic. That album is so good. I've got to, I've got to compartmentalize Don Henley the person from Don <laughs> Henley the artist. The room that Mills recorded in, I think Studio B it was, was apparently purpose-built for Frank Sinatra. Mm. Although, ironically, most of the vocals for this album were recorded in Blank Mills's car. Oh, really? He said, I'd, uh, I'd record vocal takes into a laptop, then listen back to see if they were usable sonically. The sound was actually quite good because the car is like an isolation chamber. All the cloth seats soaked up any reflections and the windshield was angled at such a drastic slope that there wasn't any slapback. And you know, everyone sings in the car. Very true. What car is he driving? I, I, I don't know. Fair play, fair play. Well, to tie him into a sound purchase in episode two, we discuss King Crimson's use of the Roland synthesizer guitar. Mills follows Hi-Ho with an album of mainly instrumental tracks recorded almost exclusively with the now vintage Roland guitar synth. Oh. Is it just one of those things where it's it's basically it's sort of just a song without the vocals? Like soundscaping. Oh, it's soundscape stuff, like big ambient. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, fair enough. I mean... 
Something different, why not? Hi-Ho features a bit of a who's who playing session roles. Legendary session drummer Jim Keltner is playing the Ungabungas. <laughs> the what now? The Ungabungas. <laughs> Which are? The drums. All right, okay. <laughs> uh, he's obviously played with almost everyone. John Lennon, the Travelling Wilburys, Eric Clapton, Joe Cocker, Ry Cooter, Delaney and Bonnie, Bob Dylan, Carly Simon, Ringo Starr, George Harrison, Neil Young, Dave Grohl, John Mayer, Oasis, B.B. King, The Pretenders, Crosby, Stills and Nash, Brian Wilson, Pink Floyd, Roy Orbison, and someone we'll talk about in a moment's time, Randy Newman. And uh, that other Beatle no one cares about. So was Ringo Starr the only one he didn't work with? <laughs> no, I think Paul McCartney's the only one he hasn't worked with. Wait, so has he actually worked with Ringo? Sorry, I've got to look this up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was in the all-star band. Oh, really? Oh, fair play. I was joking, but fair, fair With enough. Joe Walsh, an eagle, who's also Ringo Starr's brother-in-law. Does, does that mean I have to now hate Ringo as well? <laughs> By association. I, I don't think it's possible. I'm going to have to burn all my old Thomas the Tank Engine VHS tapes <laughs> that I've had for the last 25 years. Christian Bonfire. <laughs> <laughs> is it possible to hate Ringo Starr? I don't think it is. I don't think so. No, I don't think he's, so. He's adorable. I watched a video by Robbie Robertson the other day. They've done a, a re-recording of The Weight by the band with like a whole bunch of people worldwide. And Ringo Starr's playing the drums for it, and he just looks like he's having the time of his life. <laughs> yeah. Anyhow, Heartbreakers keyboard extraordinaire Ben Montench tickles some keys on this album. Producer and bassist Don Was, who, I mean, again, he's just, he's been everywhere and produced everybody. Mm. And the last of the really special guests is Dr. Dre's protege, Mike Elizondo who we'll get into a little bit more later on with what he's done. He's done some cool stuff. You'll be quite jealous. <laughs> Mills has said, I just wanted to make a record that sounds like a record I wanted to hear. I think that's that's a good aim to set out with, absolutely. This is a good outcome to aim for. Yeah. I think we, as musicians, can be so caught up in what the audience wants sometimes, and ultimately we record music for ourselves more than we record music for the audience. Well, that's how it starts out anyway. <laughs> <laughs> the the exam boards over here in the UK, when students are recording their GCSE compositions, mm. they have to state who their audience is. Ah. It's a really difficult thing to explain to children because they go like 18 to 24-year-old males at a dance club. That's not really what we mean. When we want you to tell us about your audience, it means you just need to explain how the music's authentic for that audience. And so already at like 15 years old, we're encouraging people to be writing for other people rather than writing for themselves. That's, I think that's, that's all to do with people viewing it all as a business. Yeah. You, you lose a lot of the, the human aspect of it, don't you? Yeah. Record companies exist to make money. They're going to want people to write music to demographics of people that will go out and have the money and will buy it, which is pretty crappy, but... Yeah, but there's people that get around that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Ween, King Crimson. <laughs> they they get around this, and even to an extent, Blake Mills with this record, it doesn't really have any kind of chart aspirations. No, no, no. It's, just, it's not a pop record at all. Yeah. Not, not it's all. just him doing what he does. I went to see Mills perform... In February 2015, at the behest of Taylor, if you remember Taylor from Homesick Recording. Yeah, I remember Taylor. Taylor had seen Mills open for someone previously in the States. Taylor was from Seattle. It may well have actually been Dave. Yeah, 
Yes, that is my jam right there. Dave Matthews fan? Obviously you're not. Real fans call him Dave. Oh, uh, he whose name we do not mention, for fear of Pubba's retribution. <laughs> no. As Blake Mills took the stage, Taylor turned to us and said, hey, check this out. I'm going to yell America. For what? Arresting me for what? I'm not allowed to stand up for myself? I thought this was America. <laughs> yeah, his partner was mortified and disgusted and said, no, Taylor, <laughs> do. And it was too late because Blake Mills literally sat down in his chair and there was just this cry from the back of a room going, America. <laughs> it was brilliant. To his credit, Blake Mills didn't actually react to it. Uh, but I'm pretty sure that Taylor got in some trouble later on for that. His his partner was so embarrassed. <laughs> what a thing to yell. America. Hey, that guy's from where I'm from. America. America. <laughs> Shall we take a quick listen to the tracks? Let's have a quick listen. First track is If I'm Unworthy, almost an entirely solo track with Mills finger-picking chords while simultaneously thumbing a bass line on his guitar, all the while singing. So three relatively difficult things to do all at once. Yeah. I found a new meaning. This is actually the only one of the album I had heard, which I didn't realise was here from a few years back, was from those Fender videos. Oh, okay. And I've got to say, at the time, I was like really impressed like the, the way he's, like you say, doing slide, Three the bass, the thing, and, and riding the volume knob as well, like constantly adjusting that volume knob. The 
Yeah. That looks really uncomfortable. He looks like Hansel from a scary movie. <laughs> but his attention to dynamics whilst he's playing is really underrated. It's the same with people like Derek Trucks. They're always riding on yeah. that volume knob. Yeah, and to say it really shows, particularly in, in a live situation where it's just you and a guitar, it's yeah. very easy, just to, especially with an electric guitar, not to have the dynamics in there. Yeah. And yeah, just the way he's constantly on, constantly changing the voicing of how it sounds just through that is, is, is very impressive. It's incredibly impressive. Speaking of impressive things, the guitar tone is incredible on this song. On the edge of breakup, the whole time, and it finally eventually does completely break up during the solo. still subdued and it's like you say he's just riding that volume knob where he's almost playing with us really because every time he gets it to the point where it's just starting to crackle just starting to distort he whips it back down again and then takes us back up it's really good so this is basically just a love song right i just had a quick look at the lyrics if that's his view on on how love works he's a bit of a bit of an asshole <laughs> I'm unworthy of the power Okay, alright, now hold on I've got user comments from Genius here One user says This is the first song on the album And it's definitely showing hints That the narrator does not know What a healthy relationship is Buckle up, buttercup Yeah, that's, yeah there you go <laughs> But the next comment, this song is about a proud father wondering if he's suited up well enough for the great responsibility one has as a parent. Tommy Forbes wasted. But with you, life is not long enough. Wrap you in my arms. See, I didn't pick up on that that aspect of it. Ooh. I should have gone to Genius. I thought I, I thought it was a bit cheaty to keep going to Genius every time. <laughs> well, as long as we alternate, it's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You did it last week. <laughs> I go this week. Yeah. 
the the thing is i understand the the view and especially in in times like now we can look at things where it's a white male talking about the power that he's holding over someone else but yeah i mean that could just be him being aware of the attraction that he has it, it could be something a lot more romantic than just him trying to do miserable things and being a weird controlly type exactly i think we've got to bring back an element of romance especially when it comes to things like this and music and so on because these things get taken wildly out of context yeah anyway are you ready for some guitar chat i'm ready for some guitar chat okay we are tuned to open d flat for this song meaning that the strings follow d flat a flat d flat f a flat d flat Hmm. interesting so not not too surprising it'd be tuned open with the slides going on yeah yeah exactly in a live video and seeing this performed live he's playing a modded stratocaster through a fender princeton and an austin hooks modified ballon howell film projector oh man you may remember me going on about film projector amps not so long yeah ago. i remember we had to look into it what's this was this a couple of years ago or was it just last year? Was it this year? I think there's been a few discussions based There's been this. a few discussions about them. Yeah. They're um, quite pricey, <laughs> turns out. Really difficult to get outside of the US. There is a guy over here that, that will do them for you, but I think you've got to source, it, source all the stuff. He's also known to use a radial tone bone distortion, Zevex box of rock, a creepy fingers Kitty fuzz, a JHS Superbolt and a Maxon AD99. Ah. Although he doesn't recall using any stomp boxes for these recordings for this album. So that's all just amp tone. Really? Pretty incredible, right? Ah, there must have been some fuzz on there. I don't think Or he had like the most like slashed speakers or something because that's definitely got some fuzz going from what on. i've read rather than isolating drums and stuff like that he had just one good one of the guitar amps in isolation presumably so he could turn it up mega loud mm, maybe his guitar is a custom-built cuda caster a what now a cuda caster okay right so that's strap body telly neck isn't isn't that just a mischief maker not quite and here's why it's a strap body, he's got a maple tally neck, a Valco lap steel pickup in the bridge, and a Gyotone gold foil pickup in the neck. It's modelled after Rai Kuda's famous Stratocaster. Oh, of course, right. Yeah, I was going to say, where does Kuda Caster come from? But yeah, yeah. Obviously, yeah. I say obviously, it's not obvious if you don't know who, who that is, but... If you know, you know. You if know. you know. And we clearly know. So now, yeah, you probably understand my hunger for a fuzz pedal when we were jamming at the distillery. Yeah, you were. It was all 100% because of this song. Because of this. What did you settle on in the end? I got the cloven hoof. The hoof, that was it. Yeah, and then I sold it. <laughs> For the broadcast. For the Hudson broadcast, that's right, yeah. Which I do like. That. That's a damn fine pedal, yeah. Uh, so I haven't got any other notes for this, but it is an incredible song. It's it's up there as one of the best on the album. It's definitely, it is a strong start to the album. Kind of went downhill from there for me. <laughs> I'm going to win you over. I'm going to win you over. All right. Uh, the next song then is Cry to Laugh. Opens with muted ticking chords. Mills has said a lot of his moves where you're going back and forth and doing this sort of accidental and bringing it back to into the chord, just how big of a sound that is 
I really like the way mm. that translates to the guitar. So there is some Randy Newman moves in the song. Fella, huh? He ain't nothing like a regular fella. Putin putting his hat on. Hot side number nine. You say Putin's getting big headed. Putin's head's just fine. Yeah, I got I got some Randy Newman vibes from this one. You're you're much more of a Randy Newman connoisseur than I am. Uh perhaps you can suggest a song where you can hear this the one that i found was a recent song called called putin yeah i'd go with you on that one definitely uh which i hadn't heard i hadn't heard no neither there's a really brilliant awesome uh npr performance it's a tiny desk series performance of randy newman and he opens his little set with putin Stefan from the future here. I just discovered a program called Jaxta, J-A-X-T-A. In that program, I looked up Blake Mills' credits, only to find out that he actually performed on the studio version of Putin. And the whole thing comes full circle. Eventually, the guitar is joined by a buzzing double bass and some low-tuned tom-toms, which actually act more as a timpani than a drum kit. After the first full pass of the verse, sound begins to fill out with an electric guitar. And the dynamics in the chorus are huge. Such a stark contrast to the verse. When I played this to Pubba, speaking <laughs> of, I love the way that he comes up in every single episode. We have to get him on here at some point. Definitely. When I played this record to Pubba, the dynamic shift made him sit up and listen and stop judging, which was brilliant. It almost won him over. <laughs> almost. It's like, it is his thing though. Like I say, that sort of dynamic shift and, and just the, yeah. the way it's played as well, to be honest with you, is very Pubba. Yeah, and he's he's definitely going to be mentioned a few more times because there's certain things, especially with Jim Keltner's drumming, that comes up, and I'm just like, whoa! Did Pubba steal those moves? You know, well, it might just be see Pubba's a, a jazz boy, you know, mm. so it might just be a, a jazz thing. Hello, and welcome to Jazz Club, bringing you all that's best in the world of jazz. Nice, jazz, jazz, cool, cool. <laughs> <laughs> welcome to Jazz Club. Smooth. Nice. (laughs) There's a great use of strings orchestrated by Rob Moose, who doesn't actually oversaturate the song with strings. So he's not doing the Phil Spector wall of sound 
No. I'm going to absolutely ruin the long and winding road by the Beatles. Instead, he just uses the strings as a as a textural gap, kind of. They just sit in the background to just keep you there. The modulation for the bridge takes us to another place. Although it's short-lived and eventually fades back into the ticking riff, in the fretboard film's recording of Cry to Laugh, you get a real sense of Mills's voicing and leading of chords. And I've got down here, he probably gives Stevie Wonder a run for his money in the amount of chord voicings in a verse. <laughs> it's very James Taylory. Yeah. Just again with with the way that he's voice leading uh, with like bass notes, it's it's pretty amazing. Uh, the third song then is just out of view. Huge open space on this song. And in between each of the little arpeggios, I still today can hear the pleasurable groans of Pubba between each arpeggio as this was the song that won him over. Oh. <laughs> One drum at a time. Kick, chomp, snare. Yeah. Chomp, oh, that's, kick, that's very Pubba as well. Yeah. Papa gave me when I was when I was 14 years old, Papa gave me one drum lesson at one of these summer camps and we we spent 20 minutes just working on drum solo or a drum fill where you just use one limb at a time. Okay. I I can tell you what that's called. No, I can't remember what it's called. He'd be able to tell us right now. We need to get him on here. You know what is fantastic that you say that the unconventional and lyrical drumming from Jim Keltner 
Reminds me of Pubba's approach to the kit. There you go. A tear that wore the mark of her thumbnails been pulled But it is. It's it's almost as if he's he's playing a melody on the drums with yeah. just where he's putting each of those strikes. It's it's really quite mature, quite laid back quite hard to do yeah it's hard to make it sound musical or good if you're doing that you know yeah let's be fair any any idiot can sit there and kind of go kick tom yeah tom snare kick exactly don was is playing the double bass which is providing a percussive plink alongside the legato of mills There's something really nice about the way that Mills plays and hearing the double bass sonically around it, mm. as opposed to just an electric bass. I think it is the percussiveness of the strings. Yeah. There are some strings recorded for this song, but they are so hidden in the mix, providing the necessary accompaniment without washing the piece. The amazing thing about this song is the maturity of Mills' playing. On his own record, he's so subdued, rather than living out his guitar hero fantasies. Mm. Just letting those chords ring out into the canyon. That's tough to do, I have to admit. As a, as a guitarist myself, <laughs> of nowhere near Blake Mills's skill level, stature, I really struggle to underplay sometimes. Yeah, it's... Well, it's the same it's the same with any kind of musical thing. If there's space, you want to fill it, don't you? Mm. You know, whether or not that's by playing extra or just adding... Adding more layers, yeah. Yeah, adding um, layers and panning, and then you have... Yeah, yeah. And then you have all the other all the crazy stuff going on. It's, it's hard. Basically like Dark Side of the Moon, whereas there's not a single moment of silence, really. No. Yeah. no particularly, not just as a player, but as a producer, that's a very easy trap to fall into. So the fact he was, you know, obviously doing both says a lot for him. Yeah, well, I think, yeah, I think that's part of part of the brilliance is that it's there's obviously more players in the strings, but with with the credits, with the way that the credits are on this record, there is four people playing on this track. Oh. In in effect, I know there's more strings players, but when you think about who's actually in the room, you've probably got guitar, drums, and bass. Yeah, and you can really hear it. This is going to sound really swanky. <laughs> but you can you can hear the room. becomes an instrument on this record and I, th- I get the feeling that that's kind of what he was going for for a lot of these tracks yeah because i mean he could have recorded it anyway he could have recorded this in his bedroom ultimately yeah. but instead he's in studio b of oceanway studios and that becomes a huge part of the sound whereas if you compare it to something like californication which is another outstanding outstanding record 
They could have recorded that absolutely anywhere. anywhere. It doesn't yeah. matter about the sound of the studio. It doesn't matter about the sound of the room. No. I have a feeling that this song is about going to a bar to have a good time and play some pool. Although his date is lured away by the flirtations of others in the place. That's pretty much what I got from the from the lyrics. She's done. I, but I think he somehow blames his girlfriend. Bit of an odd one. She's kind of, I don't know if she's left leaving him or, or what to go with these other people, but it almost feels like he's blaming her for him feeling emasculated or something like that. That was the, the vibe I sort of got from it. It was a bit like, but I'd say there's, I'd say there's definitely like a feeling of emasculation from this one. Oh, absolutely. Was he's talking about the doorman, right? Young one finds the doorman quite good looking. Yeah, bouncer thinking he thinks he's Talking gay. Him down. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, well, then the next song is Seven. What's in the box? What's in the box? <laughs> the main line on this song is it's the seventh song on the record. It always makes me cry. This Track song four. is number four, exactly. So. We'll check back in with number seven a little later on. Ooh. Featuring Fiona Apple on harmony vocals and bells. I heard the bells for the first time. I, I went out and brought the record the day after I saw him in concert, went to Resident in Brighton, mm. bought it the day after I was infatuated after that performance. But I've only just heard the bells. I think I picked up on them. I like the messy vocals. They're not rehearsed to the point of complete and utter like eagles tightness. They're great singers though. You can't take that away from them. Sure I can. <laughs> <laughs> Let me think of a better band. Better band than the Eagles, Stefan. It's not. It's not doable. There are no better bands. The Eagles are the best band. I like the messy vocals. They're not rehearsed to the point of tightness like the Starlight vocal band. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there is a looseness to them which gives them a sense of soul. They keep saying the same word at a different point, either slightly delayed or slightly before each other. And mm. it gives it that kind of sense of finding their way through, finding their kind of their harmony, if you will. It features heartbreaker Bentmont Tench on the piano. His sound on, the tre on this track is so unique. It sounds like his piano is recorded underwater. So much so that I assumed it was a marimba or a mallet instrument, as there's no sustain. It's all kind of yeah, percussive strike. I didn't realise it was a piano. Yeah. I only heard it once again this week. I mean, I'd heard that part, but I only put it together that it was a piano this week. Oh. Yeah. 
Okay, that's pretty cool. He's a heartbreaker, man. That's true. Yeah. That is true. Gabe Kahana's ace tone organ pops up. Giving off a kind of carnival vibe, which again, we'll come back to a lot in later mm. songs. So can we take a moment to talk about that guitar tone? Like the big, the big awesome slidey one or... Yeah, I can't escape them right now. Maybe it's a California thing. The slide that is somewhere between the rocking mess of Joe Walsh and the clean licking of Derek Trucks or Dwayne Ullman. It's kind of just ever so slightly in between. We we studied at university, we studied Joe Walsh's slide, slide playing and obviously Derek Trucks came a lot. That's where I first heard about Derek Trucks, studying guitar at university. And... Yeah, so the whole the whole thing with Joe Walsh is that it's it's just messy, but that's what creates such a cool sound. Yeah, you know, is that it's is all these extra notes being played because he's not muting out so that he's just playing one string at a time. Mm. He's just going. Whereas Derek Trucks, Dwayne Ullman are very much very clean slide. Yeah, the beautiful thing about slide guitar is you're not wrong till you stop. So, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's um. There's a fun story, actually. I read an article where Blake Mills was being interviewed because he first popped up into kind of public consciousness as a soloist. He played at one of Eric Clapton's Crossroads festivals. He was invited by Clapton, invited by God himself. Mm. God himself, because, you know, the famous graffiti, Clapton is God. I mean, it's wrong, but to each other. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> I've never been that fond of Eric Clapton. No. He's one really. of those guys where I've got a lot of respect for him and his music. We've talked about him briefly before on another one of our episodes with how his personal life is really, really tragic. But the thing I'll say with Eric Clapton is I always tell my students that he was God, especially when we talk about Jimi Hendrix coming into town for the first night and jamming with Cream. And the fact that before Jimi Hendrix, everybody thought, Clapton was the greatest that there ever will be. Wow. And then in one night, Clapton was just reduced to tears. He was like, and I think it was everybody was just completely blown away. But anyway, Clapton invited Blake Mills to come and play at the Crossroads Festival because apparently he had heard some of Mills's playing on a Grey's Anatomy episode. All right. <laughs> and so he phoned up Derek Trucks and said, Hey, I've just finished watching Grey's Anatomy and your playing was fantastic. And uh, Derek Trucks goes, no, that's not me. So they both found out who it was and they both have a lot of respect for Bills, which is pretty cool. A comment on YouTube says, feels like the musicians are gathering into a room one by one. That vocal harmony is leading the way. It would be cool to be in that room. I have to, I have to admit, it would be very cool to be in that room. For sure. A nice love song that explores the dynamic spectrum once again. He's riding that volume knob and his awareness of dynamics is probably second to none. I can't think of any other producer that generates such dynamic contrast. Brain's gone completely blank, so I, I can't think of anyone off the top of my head. But it's... Well, then you have to agree with me. So, <laughs> Don't tell our friends about me. Track number five. Probably the most accessible song on the record. Allegedly inspired by Sonny Boy Williamson's Keep It To Yourself. Do me a favor, keep our business to yourself. Please, darling, do me a favor, 
power business to yourself. I don't want you to tell nobody in your family and don't mention it to nobody else. Fiona Apple lends her jazzy vocals to add to the idea that this song is about the mistakes made by both the male and the female in the relationship. I like that note. I don't know if that's the reason why they had it, but that's pretty cool. It's pretty pretty cool. She also contributed the response lines in the third chorus. They see, I've, I think it's funny you, you say it's one of the most accessible songs on the album because this is normally where it starts to lose me a bit. Oh, you don't like this song? Well, no, it's, just, it's not. This is this is the weird thing. So it's not that it's a bad song. It's just it just doesn't grab me. I, was, I, I find myself when I was listening to it and I, I'd, I'd start doing something else and then I'd realise, yeah. oh, wait, no, three songs have gone by. I need to go back and listen to it. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I know what you mean. Uh, John Bryan is playing the tiple, which is a Latin soprano guitar. Mills plays the guitaron, which adds the subtle Latin vibe and a bit more low end on the bass. Mills is also playing the drums on the track. The guitar's in a funny tuning again where the top two strings are B-flat and F. So E-A-D-G, B-flat and F. Oh, fair enough. Yep. Genius calls this a modern country track with some elements of folk and indie pop. And I think, come on, Genius, you may as well just list every genre ever there. <laughs> There's some really nice slide guitar, especially towards the end. I'm wondering if that's on the tiple, which also is played by Mills. Really clean slide guitar on this. Probably the other guy then, wasn't it? It might be, but you know, if this is a Blake Mills solo record, and they both they both play that to play as well, so well, at the same time. Well, maybe I don't know. I wasn't there, Jake. Would have been cool if they did. Yeah. Uh, do you have notes for this one other than this is where you start to fall asleep? That was sort of it. <laughs> that was it. Okay. All right. Well, I'm, look, I'm going to get you. And then the next one just says "See above." So. Oh my god. <laughs> Okay, song number six is Gold Coast Sinking. This track does not feature Don Was on the bass. It's the first to not feature him. Instead, it features Dr. Dre's protege, Mike Elizondo, who had previously worked with Carrie Underwood, Mastodon, Ry Cooder, Eminem. He wrote Just Lose It and The Real Slim Shady. Wait, sorry, he worked with Mastodon. It's a bit of a departure, isn't it? Mastodon to Eminem. Well, you know, I mean, you know. He's worked with 50 Cent. He wrote In The Club. Go, 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 
21 Pilots, uh, New Zealand singer Jen Wigmore. She recorded an album with um, the Cardinals, who were Ryan Adams' backing band for a while. Gwen Stefani, Mary J. Blige, Alice Cooper, and Eric Clapton. He's he's worked with a lot of people. Do you think he signs off his emails and stuff? Dr. Dre's protege. I think just Dre Jr. Dre Jr. <laughs> well, it's like the Radio Disney Kids Pop version of Dre yeah, songs. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so the guitar tone is again immense, both in the chorus and at the end of this track. And again, I want you to think, supposedly there are no stomp boxes. Once again, I struggle to believe there's nothing on that. Or at the very least that they haven't done something with the speakers or like mismatch something out there to somewhere to there may be outboard gear on but there's there's no stomp boxing oh outboard gear is just posh fancy stomp boxes aren't they <laughs> so yeah but there's no actual stomp boxes you don't stomp on outboard gear do you could do you could do but <laughs> i don't advise it yeah <laughs> at the beginning especially it sounds as if mills is doing that randy newman back and forth do 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 The ticking on the hi-hat and the side stick gives just enough of groove to hold this piece together because otherwise it's very, very free. Allegedly, Mills is playing bass harmonica on this track, although I'm yet to find it in the mix. I enjoy the way the guitar gives way to the tremolo finish. What a We've done it. We've reached the seventh song on the record that always makes you cry. The seventh song on the record always makes me cry. Except this one is like a 30 second guitar noodle <laughs> where you just don't get enough, I think, information to make you cry. Once again, he's also playing harmonica, apparently, on this. Harmonica is traditionally the saddest of all instruments. So, uh, no. Is it in D minor, the saddest of all keys? No, but do you know what is in D minor, the saddest of all keys? Lick my love pump. It's a bit of a departure from the kind of thing you normally play. Yeah, well, it's part of a, uh, a trilogy, really, a musical trilogy that I'm doing in D minor, which I always find is really the saddest of all keys, really. I don't know why, but it makes people weep instantly to play a... <laughs> It's a horn part. It's very pretty. You know, just simple lines intertwining. You know, very much like I'm really influenced by Mozart and Bach, and it's sort of in between though. It's really, it's like a Mach piece, really. It's, what do you call this? Well, this piece is called uh, Lick My Love Pump. <laughs> <laughs> that was not the answer I was expecting. Well, that's, that's the song that Nigel Tufnell plays while he's talking about that in Spinal Tap. I was expecting you to say in the air tonight. I, that's what I thought you were quoting. 
No, no, I was quoting Spinal Tap. I, I remember watching a classic albums of Face Value and Phil Collins literally sits at the piano and goes, Got a nice chords, D minor. The saddest chord of all. <laughs> C, B flat. Back to C. Piece of cake, really. I'm pretty sure he was probably quoting Spinal Tap. Speaking of Spinal Tap, actually, they showed up in that um, uh, Black Album thing I was watching. Oh, did they? Yeah, yeah, like they were at an award show or something like that with uh, good old metal liquor and basically accused them of stealing their album cover, which they did. You know, it's called Black Album. It's called Black Album. Now, where did the idea come from to do an all-black album, Metallica representatives? <coughs> to me, it's sort of a, it's a, uh, sort of an underhanded left-wing tribute. <laughs> it's, an, it's an homage dressed yeah. up as a... Or a homage. As a woman. Or a homage, yeah. Dressed up as a woman, yeah. 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 Well, it was meant as a homage. Well, I'll tell you something, if it had been a really piss-poor album, then we would have gotten right to because yeah. you know? <laughs> they would have but thought it was art. It was a decent album, didn't sell badly, so we figured, yeah, yeah, we, we took it as a tribute. No, it's got a grey snake, it's got the name of the band on it too. I mean, well, I know you can't that. miss. If we had done that, we might have sold more copies. Well, we can't miss that, we're not <laughs> them. Snake. Well, well, it, and the name Metallica might have helped. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, for me, I don't know why we put this song on this record, unless it's some sort of clever in-joke about the seventh song on the record always makes you cry and it's just a guitar noodle. But it's a beautiful, heart-wrenching guitar noodle. That isn't in D minor the saddest of all keys. It's dissonant. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll give you that it's dissonant, but, you know. Half Asleep, which Jake was listening to most of this album. Drop D in tuning. <laughs> We're back to Don Was, Jim Keltner and Mills in the rhythm section. I love the sound of the E minor 9 chord that rings out. Minor nine. Ooh, jazz. Jazz. Nice. <laughs> Mills is once again showing his uh, voice leading capabilities and is some of Mills's best lyrics, in my opinion, on this song. The greatness of this moon pours its concrete over your bed. And in the darkness of the room, she needs you and you'll rise like bread. I think that's fantastic. Hmm. I think it's a reference to a night of adultery. Bad man. What a bad mm. man. Mm. Oh, why are we listening to a bad man? You didn't, tell, you didn't tell me you were suggesting a bad, evil man when you suggested this album, Stefan. Disappointed in you. Is he as bad and evil as Don Henley? I mean, he's up there. Say what you like about Don Henley, but he wouldn't cheat on anyone. Wait, no. No, wait, no. <laughs> this song has been compared to the sound created by Elliot Smith. Oh, yeah, I've, I can see that. I've never really listened to much Elliot Smith before. But from what I gather, he's just like kind of the poor man's Jeff Buckley. All the feels. <laughs> That's really oh. rude of me because he's dead, but you know, well, they're both dead now. They're both dead, it's fine. Dead. Yeah. He was worse than dead. His brain is gone. <laughs> uh, well, the next song then, if you don't have any notes for that one. Uh, my, my notes for this one were um, big orchestral bit kind of got me, got my attention again, and then it stopped. Why did it stop? What happened to the big orchestral bit? 
What about subtlety, man? Yeah, but I like the big orchestral bit, and it only lasted for about four seconds. Bring it back. I want more orchestra. Okay. Well, the next song then is uh, Three Weeks in Havana. If I remember correctly, Mills was invited to do a session in Havana for three weeks, obviously. I'm married to Zanna in a place called Havana. Right. The song yep. is written about his experiences there. I could be making this up, but I feel that he was invited by one of his guitar heroes, Rai Kuda. It would certainly be kind of romantic in a way, if it were. The recording only features Mills and former Doors bandmate Griffin Goldsmith on the drums. It's it's there. It's an acoustic. It's doing a thing. Yeah. There's a drums. They're doing a thing. I kind of like the vocals on it. The way he's kind of like whispering, very kind of Chet Bakerish. Time after time. I tell myself that I'm... Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's vocals. They're doing a thing. They're all doing things. It's good. The next song is Before It Fell. That's the mariachi one, right? Yeah, so... Yeah. Yeah, I like this one. Good, good. good. I'm glad. <laughs> I was like, oh, mariachis. I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm invested again. Seeing him play at Comedia, he had a fantastic touring drummer by the name of Stuart Johnson. There was this humorous preamble to set this song up, explaining that Johnson spent weeks in awe of Keltner, who had performed the drums and percussion alongside Griffin Goldsmith on the track. And he'd managed to get it down prior to the tour, which was apparently a huge relief. So get all of that percussion and drumming into one performance by one person. Impressive. And seeing it live, he's got a table of just percussion bits, shakers and clackers. And he's like drumming one handed whilst he keeps reaching over and grabbing another piece of percussion to shake it. It was pretty incredible to see. He had basically busted his backside. After he showed up for rehearsals and they did a run through the band, which also featured uh, Sebastian Stand on the bass, who'd previously played with the Finn Brothers, the band was shocked. Mills had to explain to Johnson that, of course, they had layered all of the Keltner and Goldsmith percussion, and Johnson wasn't expected to play all of the parts, yet he could, and he did. Very impressive. He also had this massive, like, marching bass drum set to the right side of his drum kit. So, especially on, like, um, If I'm Unworthy, the little tag, which I didn't mention, I absolutely adore the fact that the drums and bass and stuff come in for, uh, like, two bars at the end of If I'm Unworthy.
I just think that's brilliant because you're just like, yes, finally, it's built up to this point and it's going to go somewhere and then it's like, oh, it's over. But there's this massive booming bass drum and on the track, I think it's literally just a kick drum, but live, Stuart Johnson would be smashing this like marching bass drum. They did really, really well on this track to create that kind of circusy mariachi vibe. I think it sounds brilliant. Mm. Yeah, I like this one. Uh, that's the notes. I felt like with previous songs, they made almost too subtle. Sort of felt like they they didn't go anywhere. Whereas with this one, like you said, you had the the build up, even if it was a very short oh, short payoff. Sorry for the build up. At least it was there. Okay, then the next song is uh, "Shake Your Head." Oh man, I turned this off halfway through. I was like, it got to about four minutes in. I was like, this must be near the end. So I was like, no. <laughs> I just skipped the rest well, of it. It's, it's definitely, dear <laughs> listeners, a more substantial instrumental in comparison to Silence is Sincerity. Uh, yeah, just a bit. Yeah. Keltner is drumming with Mills playing guitar and bass and string arrangements by Rob Moose. The dynamics are another really awesome display of just two or three musicians completely locked in. It's a great display of musicianship and musical awareness. And it is impressive that there are only three musicians on this track, although I'd actually have liked to have seen a bass player and possibly a keyboard player. I'd like to have seen the instrumentation filled out a bit more. For an eight-minute song, you've you got to have stuff going on, even if they're just coming in and dropping out again and they're only in it for a little bit. It's well, yeah, like... but, I mean, for me, it's it's that thing of, like, you're going to do this massive eight-minute song to demonstrate how good you guys are as musicians as, in terms of, like, playing together but there's only two of you playing on it. You know what I mean? Like, I would have liked yeah. to have had some more people on this track. You and I both record a lot of music, and we record all of the parts ourselves, and sometimes all it takes is for one other person to play a part because they're not going to play it the same way that you play it. Yeah. It would have just been nice to hear this this track fleshed out a bit more with other people. Yeah, a bit of an extra spin yeah, on exactly. it. and Exactly. Yeah. It could it could have been a lot more than it was. Although ironically, it's an eight minute song. But what I mean is sonically, it could have been a lot, lot more. Curable disease is the final track on the record, and again, it's the second song to feature mainly Keltner and Mill. The song Curable Disease makes the listener take a step back to think about their current, past, and future relationships and what it meant to be real with yourself and someone else. The form of this song is one of the less complex on the album, but its harmonic simplicity and lightness helps its message to get across. Initially, Mills wanted to record a backing track and sing in the vocals later, but he was struggling to get the groove settled without singing, so he ended up singing and recording at the same time, singing and playing. Fair enough. Uh, all I've really got for this one, I've got a bit of an America vibe from it. I think it's like the little guitar flourishes at the beginning. Venture Highway. Yeah, for those yeah, little yeah. bits at the beginning, but not for the rest of the song. It's not. <laughs> the whole point of this podcast is to explore music together, to explore music with you, with the listeners, and introduce all of us to new artists that maybe we haven't heard of, new albums, like last week with The Mollusk by Ween. That's rocketing up my charts at the moment. I am really, really <laughs> liking that album. And it somewhat has soured my experience of this album this week. This has been one of my top albums for the past five years, consistently. One of the first albums that I've written about 
at stephsquats.com. I did a big review on it when I bought it. I was just completely over the moon and infatuated with it. And it's only really been this week, in the wake of Ween, especially, that I've kind of really, I've had a bit of a tough time with this album. It doesn't take away from certain songs and certain things. I mean, this is an album that I've got a lot of history with now, so I can quite happily just have it on. I've got to say as well, like in terms of, of how it sounds and the production of it, it is phenomenal. No, the production like, is great. But then amazing. we said that about Ween as well, and it's true. But it's a different kind of production. It's a very different style, absolutely. The secret weapon of this production and so on is probably the room and getting the room to come through on the record. You can hear that room as yeah. a separate instrument almost. Yeah, particularly with the drums, you get a real sense of the space of the room going on yeah. with that. Which, you know, I imagine means they probably didn't do any close miking with it. Very few, probably like a free mic set up, mm. kick, snare and uh, Apparently they put, um, they put the drums through guitar preamps and stuff like that as well. Fair, fair play. But yeah, they sound great. But the thing with this album, I guess, is that it's it's a guy, it's only his second album that he's ever done. It was recorded four years after his first record. And he he was just able to recruit his heroes to come and play with him. And that's kind of all of our dreams, right? Yeah, yeah. It would be a dream for me to record an album with Blake Mills as a producer, as a guitarist, because he's just that good. And I'd love to create an album that sounded like yeah. this one did. yeah. But anyway, we should move on. Firstly, Jake, what is your favourite track of Hi-Ho by Blake Mills? Probably still going to be with If I'm Unworthy, mostly because of, of the live performances I've seen of it, more so than because of anything on the album. It's just phenomenal live. For me, that's the that's the song on the album. It's a great, great opener. It's generally a good song. I have to agree with you. It's not like the best opener as in like... Uh, well, no, obviously not, because that's Black Shuck. Uncontrollable urge. Yeah, I, look, I'm going to have to agree with you. If I'm Unworthy has always been my favourite. I just think it layers everything. Like I say, it's the anticipation of the drums and the bass to enter there, and when they finally do, it's a huge payoff for about two bars, and then it's over. The guitar playing is exquisite. The singing is great. Knowing that the song could potentially be about a potential father kind of grappling with those those ideas of worthiness and so on. I, I can relate to that. I'm still worthy. The second question is, where would you rank this in your current top 10? This is now the sixth entry. Going to go in at number six, I'm afraid. It's going to go in at number six. Right, so for me, I'm torn, Jake, I'm torn. I don't know whether to put it in fifth place above Devo or in fourth place above Devo and the Foo Fighters. I can't help you with that, friend. You'll have to uh, flip a coin. I'm going to put it in fifth place, and I'll, I'll tell really? you for why. W-E-E-N. <laughs> Ween have ruined Blake Mills they for They kind of have. And then the question you're all waiting for, is this Hi-Ho 2014 release by Blake Mills a sound purchase? For myself, it is not. It is not. I struggled to get through this album in one sitting. I zoned out several times and had to go back to things. And then I zoned out again. And then I turned it off to listen to something else for a bit. And then I came back to it after that. So I was like, stream it for free. But I've, I, I'd do that before considering buying it. But for me, no, I 
no, not, not. Well, your process this week not only shows how determined you are for this podcast, but it's the exact process that I just assumed I was going to have with Ween prior to listening to them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I thought it was going to be a real struggle, especially, I mean, the first song I heard was the opening track, which is the uh, Dancing in the Show Tonight, where I just listened to it and went, oh my God, I've got the longest week ahead of me. Look, I'm still going to say that this is a sound purchase. One, because I've already purchased it. And, <laughs> you know, hearing this on vinyl, it is pretty awesome. This is still a excellent recording for production reasons. I think if you, if you really are a student of musicality, of recording and production and stuff like that, this is a really, really interesting case study. The songwriting is probably what lets it down, or perhaps maybe the lyric writing, Mm. because it's either that the lyrics are sometimes a little bit too clustered, a little bit too cryptic, or other times there doesn't seem to be enough depth in there. But that's a hard criticism for me to put out there. His first album was very personal. Mm. It still is a sound purchase for me. Well... Now that we've had a disagreement on something, we'll have to stop being friends and... uh... I'm never talking to you again. At least until (laughs) the next episode, anyway. (laughs) I am Stefan, and this was A Sound Purchase, a podcast that does a deep dive to explore iconic recordings. Check the show notes and up-to-date top tens list and other musings at stephsquatch.com. You can engage with us on social media under the handle Steph Squatch Blog. Other episodes of A Sound Purchase are available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and StephSquatch.com. And if you've enjoyed the sounds during today's episode, visit your local record store to pick up a copy of Blake Mills's Hi Ho. Support local businesses. <laughs>